Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Purpose of Life podcast. I'm your host, Dwight Hubblethwaite, and I'm so excited for part two of Howard Hendricks' series on disciple making. For those of you who are just now keying in, I know that Howard Hendricks taught at Dallas Theological Seminary and was an awesome guy and had an eye patch. Um, you should probably pause this though and go back an episode so you can get it from the top. But without further ado, here's part two, Howard Hendricks' Disciple Making. And all of God's people said, Amen. I knew you wanted to say that. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm sure you heard of the Colorado Chamber of Commerce that put on a contest. First prize, one week full paid vacation in Texas. <laughs> Second prize, two full weeks in Texas. Someone asked me some time ago, how can you tell if a Texan is lying? I said, friend, if his lips are moving, he is. So I wanted to impress you, Jim, that even a Texan could wear a tie and a coat. Now this morning, we barely got our foot in the door in examining this exciting and exacting process of making disciples. We sought to ask and answer a basic question, namely, what is a disciple? We discovered from the New Testament, he is a marked man. He's a branded individual. First of all, a disciple is a learner. Therefore, perpetuate the learning process in your own life and in the life of your disciples. A disciple is a follower. Therefore, make sure you provide adequate models. They are going to follow you. The question is, are you following Christ? A disciple is a reproducer. Therefore, be careful how you build, because you're going to have to live with your product. Now, with this backdrop, we are prepared to ask and answer a second question equally as determinative. What is the biblical basis for discipleship and for making disciples? Is this just a nice idea invented by Doss Trotman, promulgated by an interesting group of people called navigators. It's always interesting to explain what that involves. Or does it have scriptural sanction? Is it the product of human pragmatic experience? Or is it the result of divine revelation? Tonight, I'd like to direct your attention to two passages of Scripture which are freighted 
with instruction and with implications. And I hope that you will follow closely because we're going to spend considerable time in each of these passages. First of all, I want you to turn in the Gospel by Matthew to the 28th chapter. Whenever you turn in the Gospels, you want to remind yourself that this is not what Christ would say if he were here, but what he is saying because he is here. In Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, you have what is commonly called the Great Commission, what I think ought to be called more accurately the Great Omission. The Great Commission was recorded five times in the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts. And all within a 40-day period of time called the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ. In other words, he gave the Great Commission during his last days upon planet earth before returning to heaven. And last words are lasting words. Let's suppose that I were to tell you tonight I have a guarantee that I will be in eternity by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So this is the last time I will speak on earth. And I'd like to share a few things with you, my dear Christian brethren. How much do you suppose you would remember? And as you traveled around the country and ran into people, they would say, hey, were you at the Glen? When Hendricks gave his last message, Yes, I was. Did he actually say this? This is exactly what he said. The closest person to you on earth whispered in your ear as you leaned over their dying body and said one statement. You would never forget it. you would remember exactly how the person said what they said. And these are those last words which our Lord gave to his disciples. This is the briefing before the battle. Our Lord is grooming a handful of men for a worldwide enterprise. And tonight I want to focus our Zoomer lens on two things. Let me give you an intellectual hat rack on which to hang our ideas. And then if you get your ball lost in the weeds and come up for air, you'll know where we are. First of all, in verses 16 through 18, I want to underscore the men to whom our Lord gave this commission. 
This is very intriguing. Secondly, in verses 19 through 20, I want to underscore the method. There are three observations in the text I want to nail down in your thinking about these men. And then we will look at some other details. Number one, I want you to note the appointed place. Verse 16. But the eleven disciples, in contrast to the unbelieving Jews of the preceding paragraph, but in contrast, the eleven disciples went into Galilee, unto the mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Will you note he is talking to a group of obedient disciples? Our Lord had said, after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And that's precisely where they met him. Now why in Galilee? Well, I believe our Lord wanted to take them to a secluded place. To a place that was away from the scene of action where they would have time to think and to reflect and to use a contemporary expression to get it all together. I don't know about you, one of the great advantages of coming to the Glen is that you get disengaged from the society in which you are normally immersed. And it gives you opportunity to think. I think everyone in this conference ought to take a little hike. You need a hike. But you need this one for a particular reason. Right up on the side of Razorback is a grave where the body of Das Trotman has been placed in love. It was placed there for a very specific reason. That was Doss's favorite spot for meditation on the Glen. And my wife and I walked up this afternoon and two other couples were there and you couldn't help but appreciate why that location meant so much to him. Just to sit down and think. Now I take it that this is what our Lord was attempting to do with the disciples. I said I want you to mark the contrast because this paragraph begins with a but. And whenever you see a but, that's a corner word of scripture. This is to be contrasted with the preceding paragraph where you have a portrait of the Jews who are resisting and rejecting the Messiah. But in this paragraph, you have the disciples who are responding and who are receiving the Messiah. 
The second observation I want to make is found in verse 17. Not only are we focused upon the appointed place, but the Spirit of God also gives us a clue as to the prevailing mood. And I want you to note it's a dual mood. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And some doubted. The word means to be distressed. It can mean to be frustrated. Now, often I have been asked, why this mixed reaction? Why is it that some worship and others doubt it? I'll tell you why. Because some of them were focusing their attention upon Jesus. That always leads to worship. Others of them were focusing upon themselves. And that always leads to frustration. These people represented a group of men who had just come off their greatest failure in their life with Jesus Christ. At the critical moment, they flaked off. Now they see him for the first time. Put yourself in their shoes. What would have been your reaction? I've often tried to think of the scene from the standpoint of being a disciple maker. And I can imagine myself in this rhubarb. And I'd have gotten the disciples together and I said, All right, man, now we got a couple problems we're going to have to talk about. Man, we're never going to take the world if you're going to drop the ball like that. You know, you can almost hear it, can't you? <laughs> Grinding it out. And it's altogether possible that some of them were so covered over with guilt that this threw them into a state of depression. After all, they had failed. Furthermore, remember to be identified with Jesus Christ meant they were liable to suffer his lot. Friend, if they had a cross for Christ, they're not going to get a garland of roses for us. And they begin to think that through, and the longer they think that through, the more uncomfortable it becomes. Not exactly popular to be identified with Jesus Christ. So when you read that some of them doubted, they had no less confidence in Jesus Christ, but they had a lot less confidence in themselves. And that's a good process to go through. One of the great problems with many Christians is that they have never come to grips with the fact that their need is not partial, it's total. Lord, you can count on me. That's what Peter said. Whenever you say that, you're about to step on a spiritual banana peel. <laughs> you're going to sprawl in the faith. And remember, it was the same one 
who cringed before a little girl. Why, you were with Jesus who? Me? I don't know what in the world you're talking about. I never knew him. Who said that? Why, the man who said, Lord, you can count on me. And I don't know about the rest of these guys, but I'm so devoted, my devotion is willing to go to the point of death. The man, the guy took on a hundred men, single-handedly, to back up the claim. One little girl says, hey, didn't I see you with him? Who? Me? <laughs> Why, you got an accent. And he couldn't deny that. He had a Galilean accent, and that was worse than a Bronx accent. <laughs> Unmistakable. I was talking to a student at the seminary some time ago. I met him for the first time on the campus. Uh, I said, what part of Canada are you from? He said, how did you know I was from Canada? I said, because I've been there. <laughs> One of the hardest lessons to learn in Christian experience, the disciples are in the process of learning. And that's those six words that fell from the lips of our Lord. Without me, ye can do nothing. Oh, the awful finality of those words. Something. Nothing. You see, my friends, the secret of the Christian life and service is not what you do for God. It's what God does for and through you. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, we have this treasure in common peanut butter jars. And Drixian translation. That the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. Will you notice in verse 18, Jesus said to them, to whom? To a group of men who just came off of the greatest bust. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go. I don't know about you, my friends, but that blows my mind. I cannot comprehend this. This is diametrically opposed to my mentality. As I told you before, I would get my students together and I'd say, look, man, good night, we're never going to reach the world this way. If you guys don't shape up, we're hung. They come off the greatest bus and the Lord says, okay, man, now, let's go take the world. What staggering confidence in them, man, no. In his ability to work through them. Just think of it. He has so much confidence, he handpicked you to be his representative to this generation. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to grab you, Dad. Boy, I am convinced that God could have used far more efficient means than you and me. The miracle of the ministry is that God chose us. 
So great is his confidence in the Spirit's ability to use you. Because all authority, this is ultimate authority. In heaven, well, that's not hard to believe. On earth, really? You think God's biting his nails tonight? <laughs> you hadn't thought of that theological question before, had you? <laughs> We're a lot of Christians who are so shook up. You know, man, good night. I sure hope God makes it. Wake up in the morning, read the newspaper, say, Lord, look at this. What you trying to do? Give him information? <laughs> Wonderful thing living in this kind of a society to know that he's got it all together. Because I'll clue you, we don't. And all authority in heaven and on earth is in his hands. And he said, you, go. He's the answer to your problem. And their fear was turned into faith. Their terror into trust. Now in verses 19 and 20, I want you to look at the method. Two things I want to underscore in your thinking. First of all, in verse 19, he sets forth the process. And in verse 20, he sets forth a promise. And I'll miss these, or you miss everything. Verse 19, the process. Now I want to teach you a little Greek tonight. About the only Greek some of you know is a guy that runs a restaurant down the street. But I'm going to teach you a little Greek tonight. There is only one main verb in this verse. And that verb is make disciples. Now, I don't know what translation you have, but frequently it will begin with, Go ye therefore, translated as if go were an imperative. Go is not an imperative in this passage. It is a participle and should be translated when you go or having gone. Now, our Lord uses the command to go elsewhere, but in this passage, he assumes the going. In fact, I've often thought, as I study the pages of the New Testament, I don't think it ever occurred to the early church not to go. That's a modern invention. What else do you do with good news? Well, we bottle it. We get the franchise in the area. Little flask here and come to our church, we'll pour you out a little. No, he never called us to bottle truth, but to dispense it. Now, there are three participles, and I want you to look very carefully. The first of these 
is going. When you go. Now this involves a process. A process that may be extended over a long period of time. Or it may be telescoped in a relatively short period of time. I'll never forget sharing the gospel with a guy on a plane one day, and I barely got into the second law before the guy says, yeah, I understand, I want to accept Christ. You know, uh, uh, wait a minute, I'm not through yet. <laughs> and he wouldn't let me finish. I learned later, the guy was like a piece of over, overripe fruit. In the last six weeks prior to my contact with him, he told me he had 16 different invasions. So by the time I came along, you know, you just... <laughs> sort of blows your mind, depresses you. You know, I didn't have a chance to go through the laws here. But I've discovered with some of my crusade friends and others who use similar methods that, you know, if the person ever becomes a project, they lose interest. So what do you do with a guy when you come to the end of the fourth law and says, you know, is there any reason why you don't want to receive Christ now? And he says, yeah, I don't want him. <laughs> I beg your pardon. And I don't know what your experience has been, but I've discovered that some people who have taken a considerably long period of time to make a decision concerning Jesus Christ are some of the finest disciples I have ever seen in my life. I'm thinking of a guy that I led to Christ in Dallas, a medical doctor. It took him two years and about three months to come to faith. One day after a session, he came up to me and he said, Hendricks, if what you're talking about is true, I'm not on the inside of this. And I made an appointment with him and had the privilege of introducing him to Jesus Christ. Man, I wish we had 600 dozen more disciples like that guy in the city of Dallas. I hope that God will deliver you from becoming a hustler of souls. When the Lord talks about going, he's talking about a process, not a process of taking real estate. He's talking about a process of flowing into the life of people. What we used to call in young life, winning a hearing for the gospel. I love that. Every now and then, you know, you have somebody, well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Boga Boga Land. Well, what's going on out there? Well, huh? you know, Lloyd said go to the world. Any people out there? No, it's an uninhabited island. <laughs> well, I sure hope you have a ball out there, man. But I'll clue you, God never called you there. When... John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. He is not talking about the world geographically. He is talking about the world anthropologically. He's talking about the world of people. Wherever there are people, 
that's where we're obligated to go. Whether there are three people or 300,000 people. And I hope you get off of the jag of thinking that the only place we ought to go with the gospel is where there are a lot of people. Because Jesus Christ said, wherever there are people, you've got an obligation to take the gospel. Now there's a second participle, and that's baptizing. Going involves a process. Baptizing involves a crisis. In other words, this is the time when an individual identifies with the cause of Jesus Christ. When he comes to faith. See, a man or a woman is either perfectly saved or he's perfectly lost. And Jesus Christ is saying, your task is not only to go and confront men with the gospel of the grace of God, but it's also to bring them to a point of commitment to Jesus Christ where they enter into the Christian life. But that's not where it stops. Because there is another participle, and that's the participle teaching. That is also a process. It's a process, as we saw this morning, that is coterminous with life. As long as you are a Christian, you are in the process of being taught all things that Jesus Christ commanded. And you will notice you are to teach people to observe these. That is, not simply know them, but experience them. Teaching is a process of producing change. And what an exciting process that is. The mandate is to make disciples. The means is by going, by baptizing, by teaching. May I just stop long enough to say that I don't understand all I know. I just know that we are forever getting off on an extreme. Now, after I finish with this group of navigators, I'm heading north a little to minister to the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. A little later this year, I will be ministering to the staff of InterVarsity. In the process of time, I will be ministering to all kinds of groups. And wherever I go, people say, well, you know, what do you think are our limitations? Or what do you think are the assets of such and such a group? And for some strange reason, we are always being pushed in the direction of an extreme. Now, this is a case in point. We got a lot of people going. They're evangelists. They're gung-ho leading people to Jesus. They're constantly sharing their faith. They convict you by their tremendous drive. You know, they never miss an opportunity. What do they do with the people after they lead them to Christ? Well, they're like an obstetrician 
who brings the child into the world and then puts him out the front door of the hospital and says, okay, Mac, make it on your own, right? Not exactly. We also have a pediatrician who picks him up at that point and says, we better care for him. Now, the same thing is true in the process of ministry. There are some Christian groups that are long on evangelism. There are other Christian groups that are long on education. They are constantly teaching their people. Man, they know more than it is possible to know. <laughs> they got the second beast of Revelation cold. <laughs> They're also the first beast in their home. <laughs> they got more answers than we got questions in seminar. See, they're educated beyond their intelligence. He said, give us some more of the word, brother. Now, <sighs> spiritual obesity. So well, why don't you guys go out of here for a while? Just, you know, share, cry. I don't know, brother, we got to find out some more of the word. And I sometimes would like to take these people and say, okay, we're not going to meet this morning. You know enough for the word. You know more than you'll ever care to give an account of. Today we're going to go out. And I want you to take that street, second row, take the following, third row, that knocked door. <laughs> yeah, what do you want? Then <laughs> you're on. Wouldn't that be an experience? Then I like to take some of these people that are go, 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 share, share, you know, all of the rest and say, hey, why don't you sit down? I got one thing to tell you. <laughs> you think I really need some of that education? <laughs> now you watch it. You watch it because some of you are coming up. Some of you are real early in the game. That's a good time to get this picture. And some of you are further down the line. You ought to have insight in this area. And that is Christian group after Christian group from the first century to the 20th century is off on one side or the other. They're long on evangelism and short on education or they're short on education and long on evangelism. And once you lose your evangelistic drive, you are dead. And once you lose your passion to learn what Jesus Christ has commanded us, you are dead. Thus endeth the sermon. Now, let's look at verse 20. I just had to get that off my chest. Boy, I feel better. Look at the latter part of verse 20. Here is the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is not a carte blanche promise. That is not a promise that Jesus will be with you to the end of the age doing anything you want to do. That is a promise which is linked with a process. And as long as you are going back 
baptizing and teaching, you can be positive that Jesus Christ is with you. Isn't it interesting to note that this commission is sandwiched between two confrontations with the person of Christ? Why do you think that's true? Well, my reason is this. The commissioner is far more important than the commission. The person is far more important than the program. The one calling you is far more important than those of us who are performing the task. The divine person is far more strategic than the human persons. Don't ever forget that. The miracle, I repeat, is that he chose you to be a part of the process. And as long as you are doing what Jesus Christ commanded you to do, you are a guaranteed winner. His presence is with you. Now turn over to the second passage we want to look at. And that's found in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, you have an indication of how deeply Paul was infected by the teachings of Jesus Christ. The instruction of Matthew 28 is spelled out in terms of implementation in 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things which thou hast heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, I am a great believer in visualization. And in my judgment, you never get the picture of this verse until you see a diagram. So let me diagram it for you. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, you have a ministry of multiplication. That's what discipleship is all about. Reproducing reproducers. In this passage, it all began with a person by the name of Paul. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was given a body of truth by revelation. But he was not given that truth to bottle it but to share it. And he did. He said, Timothy, the things that you have heard among many witnesses. In other words, there were more men like Timothy into whose life the apostle built. Titus, Epaphroditus, etc., Timothy, you received the body of truth from me. You heard it. Now, Timothy, I want you to take that which you have heard, and I want you to commit it to a group of faithful men. Now, that's an intriguing 
Verb? It's a banking term. It means to make a deposit. It means to put in trust. That's a highly personal matter, but it's also a very important matter. Then he says, I want you to take that which I have communicated to you, and I want you to deposit it in the life of others with one condition. I want you to teach these others in such a way that they will be equipped to teach others, who in turn will teach others. who will teach other. Ladies and gentlemen, every time you engage in the process of making disciples, you are launching a process which ideally will never end. That ought to sober you. You ever wonder what goes through the mind of a professor before the bell rings? I'll tell you. I have the strongest urge to run. Pretty soon I will have been teaching at the seminary for 25 years. That's long enough to get an education. And I submit to you that no man in his right mind would ever choose to do what I'm doing. Unless he were convinced that God called him to do this, there is no way that he would aspire to this task. When I think of what I am doing either for good or ill in the life of my students, what a sobering responsibility, my friend. Your responsibility is no less. When Dick shared how someone built into his life, man, I sat there in that chair saying to myself, thank God for somebody who built qualitatively into a doctor's life who could multiply it. But I'll tell you, you'll wake up some night with cold sweat all over you, realizing how sober is that responsibility. You're building into the life of another, who in turn is building into the life of faithful men, who in turn is building into the life of others who will continue the process. So if you build heresy into the man's life, it's going to be around a long time. And we're still trying to uproot the heresy that was taught in the last generation. And just for your information, I have repudiated some heresy in my life intellectually 32 years ago, which emotionally I am still trying to get over. Of people who put me under a form of legalism that was absolutely crippling. And I happen to believe that's heresy. So you have to ask yourself very soberly, man, am I going to build into this man's life? What am I going to 
teacher. What am I going to show him on the basis of my example? Can I share an illustration with you that I came across many years ago? I've heard it a good many times since. Maybe you have as well. But it's a grabber because it happens to relate to my field. I believe that God has called me to a ministry of preaching and teaching. And I hope, my dear navigator friends, that you never despise preaching. You may be in a local church where the preaching is so anemic it's unreal. You want to repudiate anemic preaching, but not preaching. Preaching is a biblical mandate. You cannot have the New Testament without preaching. This is what God called me to. This is what I'm gifted for. And for years, I poured my life out. And then I came to grips with this fact. Let's suppose that I were to be able to preach to 100,000 people a day. That's a pretty fair-sized audience, right? Or have you ministered to them recently? <laughs> and let's suppose that I were twice as effective as Billy Graham. And from his staff, I have been informed that he expects about a 2% result. In other words, this is what he has experienced over the year. So if I preach to 100,000 a day and I'm twice as effective as Billy Graham, that means I've got a 4% result, which means I have 4,000 converts every day. That's pretty good, isn't it? You don't think so? See, <laughs> so you haven't been called to preach, so you don't need to be wiped out. And let's suppose that I were to preach 360 days a year, which is a pretty good schedule, <laughs> ministering to 100,000 a day. And I take five days for vacation, whether I need it or not. <laughs> that would mean that in one year, I would have 1,460,000 converts, which is a few more than I've had. In 16 years, I would have 23,360,000 converts. You know any preacher that would be glad to settle for that, for a ministry? All right, let's look at some other data. Let's suppose that in addition to my preaching ministry, not nearly as extensive I have, as I have just described, that I decide that since Jesus Christ called me to a disciple-making ministry, that this is really where I've got to get. And if I reach one person in the next six months, lead him to Jesus Christ, build him to his life, 
equip him to reproduce at the end of that six months, then at the end of one year, we've got four people who have come to faith. At the end of 18 months, we've got eight people. At the end of two years, we got 16 people. But at the end of the same 16 years, we've got over four billion. which might be a fair shot at the population of the earth. With one exception. Every time there's a breakdown, your ultimate result is cut in half. So if the two billion people failed to reproduce, then we only got half. as many. I want to ask you a very pointed question. If in 16 years of disciple making we could reach the world for Jesus Christ, how long do you really think the Savior intended us to be at this business? When, as a matter of fact, we are further toward reaching our world for Jesus Christ today than they were at the end of the book of the Acts. And every week that goes by, we get further behind in the task of reaching the world with a tremendous wave of evangelism that the Spirit is now bringing to pass throughout the world. This is a very interesting question that I love to ask my colleagues in the ministry. And you know, when you get to my age, pushing 50, I didn't say from what direction, <laughs> you begin to ask some sobering questions. And I'm asking myself, you know, how much longer am I going to be on planet Earth? I don't know any more than you do. But let's suppose in the grace of God, he gives me 10, 15 more years of my ministry. You know what I'm committed to? I'm committed, not simply to the proposition of going all over the world to preach the gospel. Because if I do that from now for the next 10, 15 years you know, at best, with 100,000 a day. I'll barely scratch the surface. But if between now and the next 15 years I can build into the life of some of my students who are my choicest disciples, then long after I'm pushing daisies, should the Lord not come back in the meantime. I'm going to have a ministry of multiplication. And you know, it staggers me to look at you. See, my friends, I didn't come up here because I don't have anything else to do. I came up here because I happen to believe that for me right now, this is the best way I can spend this week, and that's to try to build into your life. 
because I am so weary of laymen who have developed an inferiority feeling concerning their ministry that I've spent the rest of my life galvanizing laymen to say, my friend, you may have a far greater ministry than some of us in the professional sphere ever thought of having. See, I get on a plane and talk to a man about Jesus and everything's going fine. Going, you know, by the way, what do you do? <laughs> well, I'm in education. Oh, really? Well, where do you teach? <laughs> well, I teach in the Dallas Theological Seminary. The what? Oh, 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 yeah, I get it. You're a preacher. <laughs> See, I'm paid to be good. You people are good for nothing. <laughs> See, and this doctor, and you salesmen, and you housewives, and you school teachers, and you nurses, et cetera, et cetera, come into more contact with lost people in one week than some of us preachers come in contact with in a year in any significant way. But the devil sold you a bill of goods. And as I come up to you, I say, uh, hi, <laughs> hi. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Not very much. I'm just a layman. <laughs> What's your spiritual gift? <laughs> My what? <laughs> What's your spiritual gift? <laughs> I'm a plumber. <laughs> no, I didn't ask you what do you do. I'm asking you what is your gift. You can see the wheels going around. You know, what will they think up next at the seminary? <laughs> See, I stand up here behind his desk or wherever I go to minister for one reason only, and that is God has gifted me to do this. And woe is me if I do not preach and teach. I cannot do anything else, period. But God hasn't gifted you to preach. He's given you an altogether different gift because he doesn't want you in the pulpit. He wants to put you where those of us in the pulpit can never penetrate. And just to look over this audience staggers me when I think of what could happen in the state of Kansas, Indiana, etc. if just you got the picture that God called you to make disciples. And whatever else you are doing or not doing, if you are not making disciples, you're not doing what Jesus Christ commanded us to do. Dear Father, how faithful you are. We confess that we're really very slow learners. And we're embarrassed 
to recognize that here we are in the 20th century with the world going to hell on a freeway at an alarming rate. And yet somehow, as those who represent the Church of Jesus Christ on earth, we're dull of hearing. You told us so plainly, make disciples. Father, we've been doing everything in the world except make disciples. And so we pray that you will bring us back, back to your word. We believe it. We are convinced it is inspired and fully authoritative. But our Father, we pray that that may be true in our life. That what you have told us to do, we may do. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.